0: Welcome to another episode in the Headmasters Podcast. I'm John DePoe, Headmaster at Kingdom Preparatory Academy in Lubbock, Texas, and I'm here to share um, an episode with you that's kind of special today. So, instead of an interview, I'm sharing a speech that I gave uh, this past week to a group in Lubbock called Citizens for Education Reform. Uh, They are a group of concerned citizens looking at um, ways to improve education. And they had asked me to come and speak about classical education. So I uh, spoke for about 25 minutes sharing the purpose or the end of classical education, the content of classical education, and then uh, the means or the pedagogy behind it. So. Um, I ran out of time at the end. I had a lot more to say, of course. Um, so um, as we finally get into the means uh, uh, or the ways in which we deliver that kind of education, I feel like there was more, a lot more I wanted to say. Um, so um, anyway, the other the other material on there I feel really great about. Uh, before we jump into that speech, let me real quickly go over any quick announcements we have for the, our community. And the big one is that our Third term, the end of the third nine weeks, uh, wraps up on March 8th, and then uh, that also marks the beginning of spring break, and we will be taking um, our juniors on our grand tour at that time, and so um, go in and follow the, the blog posts that our students are posting that share about the grand tour and the pictures that they're going to be taking. You'll want to see all that. Uh, and you can find all that on the school's webpage. You go to academics and then uh, travel, and you'll you'll see all that get posted right there on the school's website. Um, and don't forget, we get a week off for spring break. That's uh, March 11 to 15, and then uh, we resume and on March 18th and head into that last push into um, the the last nine weeks as we wrap up the school year. It's, can you believe it? We're already three fourths done. All right, with that. Um, I believe that's all my announcements. Let's hear uh, that speech uh, to the Citizens for Education Reform. All right, thank you for inviting me. It is an honor and a privilege to share about classical education to the Citizens for Education Reform. While I teach at a classical Christian collaborative school There are many schools that are classical without being Christian or collaborative. So as you are exploring ways to reform education, I want to make the strongest case that I can for restoring the classical approach to education. And we definitely see ourselves not as doing something brand new or cutting edge, but as going back to the sure way that uh, education was done. Um, So I'll be talking exclusively about the classical portion, although I could share a lot about how I see that fitting with the Christian and collaborative. I'd like to begin by reading an excerpt about modern education. Let me see how this tracks with you. Has it ever struck you as odd or unfortunate that today, when the proportion of literacy throughout America is higher than it has ever been, people should have become susceptible to the influence of advertisement and mass propaganda to an extent hitherto unheard of and unimagined. Do you put this down to the mere mechanical fact that the internet has made propaganda more easy to distribute over a wide area? Or do you sometimes have an uneasy suspicion that the product of modern educational methods is less good than he or she might be Uh, or Or do you sometimes have an uneasy suspicion that the product of modern educational methods is less good than he or she might be at disentangling fact from opinion and the proven from the plausible? Have you ever, in listening to a debate among adult and presumably reasonable people, been fretted by the extraordinary inability of the average debater to speak to the question, to meet and refute the arguments of speakers on the other side, Have you ever followed a discussion on cable news or elsewhere and noticed how frequently people fail to define the terms they use? Or how often if one man does define his terms, another will assume in his reply that he was using the terms in precisely the opposite sense to that in which he has already defined them. Have you ever been faintly troubled by the amount of slipshod syntax going about? And if so, are you troubled because it is inelegant or because it may lead to dangerous misunderstanding. Do you ever find that young people, when they have left school, not only forget most of what they have learnt—that that is only to be expected, but forget also or betray that they have never really known how to tackle a new subject for themselves? Do you often come across people for whom all their lives a subject remains a subject, Divided by watertight bulkheads from all other subjects, so that they experience very great difficulty in making an immediate mental connection between, let us say, algebra and detective fiction, sewage disposal and the price of salmon, cellulose and the distribution of rainfall, or more generally between such spheres of knowledge as philosophy and economics, chemistry and art. Is it not the great defect of our education today? a defect traceable through all the disquieting symptoms of trouble that I have mentioned that although we often succeed in teaching our pupils subjects, we lamentably on the whole fail in teaching them how to think they learn everything except the art of learning this lengthy quote which I did slightly adapt some of those things is from a speech that Dorothy Sayers gave called The Lost Tools of Learning. It was delivered to Oxford University in 1947. As I read those words, could you identify with her concerns about education? Although we are over 75 years past the date when she gave that speech, do you think things have dramatically improved? Dorothy Sayers, had just witnessed the British educational system become transformed by the progressive politics of the early 20th century. This wave of progressive education completely gutted and re-engineered education in Britain, and we saw similar movements throughout all of Europe and America. Under the promise that modern science will show us how to educate more efficiently, and that reading old books and dead languages is not of any practical use, the Western world made a seismic shift in educational practices. The intent was to modernize education, to make it more practical, to improve it in light of modern science and psychology. But the actual result has given us generations of high school graduates who can pass standardized exams and minimal skills requirements but who remain largely ignorant of Western history and culture, who are ill-equipped to think and learn for themselves, and who have not been formed through the process of education to become people of virtue. Now, I don't want to make my case for classical education simply by pointing out the many errors of modern education. Classical education is an excellent way to educate on its own merits, not just because the alternative is a failure. Let me try to paint the positive picture of classical education by focusing on three things. So first, I will share the end or goal of classical education. Next, I will describe the content of classical education. And finally, I will comment on the means of educating classically. Perhaps the most important question to ask about anything is what is its purpose? For most things, if you want it done right, you must begin with the end in mind. So let me share with you the end of education as classical educators see it. The ultimate goal for classical education is to produce students who exhibit virtue, wisdom, and eloquence. Virtue describes a person's character, their habitual dispositions that are oriented toward true thinking, good behavior, and beautiful creativity. Virtue, broadly understood, is that characteristic in a person that orients them to aim at the right goals, on the right occasions, using the right means, following the right motives. Wisdom is often associated with the virtue of prudence, which is a person's ability to make judgments, to bring about what is good. Wisdom teaches the payoff of enduring hardships, delaying gratification, and making short-term sacrifices for long-term benefits. Eloquence may seem like an unnecessary flourish to the education, but classical educators see it as an essential mark of education. This is because eloquence is the ability to make truth appealing. It is necessary for effective leadership. As Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote, Eloquence is the power to translate a truth into a language perfectly intelligible to the person to whom you speak. Someone who knows what is true but who cannot communicate it in a winsome and persuasive way is not much more useful than someone who doesn't know what's true. Thus, the end or the goal of classical education is to produce a certain kind of young man or woman, one who has character, discernment, and credible charm. Now, I know that some might say that this all sounds well and good on paper, but where is college readiness? How are people prepared to work a job? Where is the real world application in classical education? The answer is that when you aim for the higher goals, the lesser ones come as a matter of course. In studies of graduates from classical schools, we see that these students as a group score highest on average, on standardized tests like the SAT or the ACT. In fact, classically educated students on average score about 200 points higher on the SAT than their counterparts in public education. Graduates from classical schools report higher grades in college than graduates from any other type of school. Classically educated students are more likely to earn a bachelor's degree or higher, nearly 90% of graduates from classical Christian schools go on to achieve that. Um, When you compare homeschooling and all other types of private schools with uh, public schools, the percentages that earn bachelor's degree are about equal, which is around 70 percent, or in the case of homeschooling, much, much lower. There is a measurable positive difference in classical education. So in sum, the practical skills and goals that we want from education, those things are predictable byproducts of an education that aims at greater things like virtue, wisdom, and eloquence. Having shared about the end or the goal of classical education, let me turn to the content of this education. If a student is classically educated, what will he know? A good place to begin answering this question is with the liberal arts and the great books. And I'm really glad to see that y'all have some great books here. If you are looking for something specifically to read, I would really recommend picking up Plato and reading The Apology. That is something I think every person can pick up and read and find inspiring. Read um, St. Augustine, his uh, Confessions, the first about nine books of that. Um, After, when you get into about book 10 and on, it gets a little hard. first nine books you can read um, and you'll you'll benefit from that. Read Aristotle, his Nicomachean Ethics. That would be another one I think that people in this room would be delighted to read. Um, Many people today, when they hear about the liberal arts, what they think about is a useless education, right? And there are many institutions of higher education that have made what they call liberal arts useless. So this opinion today is not baseless. However, What classical educators mean by the liberal arts is something very different. Historically, the name liberal arts meant a liberating skill. The idea is that someone educated in the liberal arts had the freedom to pursue any career, any area of advanced study. Those who are trained in one narrowly focused area with one set of skills specific to one task are not free people. They are stuck doing the one thing that they have been trained to do. In a true liberal arts education, students will learn a range of knowledge and skills that equip them for a variety of paths in life. The great books are a cornerstone of classical education. These are works that create a shared foundation of knowing for our whole society. We read Homer. Hesiod, Herodotus, the Bible, Plato, Aristotle, St. Augustine, Dante, Shakespeare, Milton, Jane Austen, Charles Darwin, uh, Nietzsche, Frederick Douglass, just to name a few. Why do we read them? Because they are tried and true authors that speak to the human condition. Their stories are the stories of Western civilization. Students learn history literature culture government economics philosophy they are prepared to enter into the great conversations of western culture indeed these authors are not only the cultural backbone but they are also the educational backbone for further studies Daniel Willingham a cognitive scientist who specializes in education at the University of Virginia explains he says for reading Students must know whatever information writers assume they know and hence leave out. Using that criteria, we may still be distressed that much of what writers assume their readers know seems to be touchstones of the culture of dead white males. The simple fact is that without that knowledge, they cannot read the breadth of material that their more knowledgeable schoolmates can, not with the depth of comprehension. So you do even catch the note of kind of despair. He actually doesn't like this, but as a cognitive scientist who's trying to explain how you can read and comprehend things, he's saying the best way to prepare for that is to read these old books, as they say, written by a bunch of dead white guys. (laughs) A classically educated student will know those cultural touchstones that are assumed in the advanced stages of education. A classically educated student will take math, English, history, and science classes, but they will also take classes in logic, rhetoric, Latin, or Greek. These additional classes help sharpen their minds for critical thinking and beautiful creating. The skills of recognizing a sound from a fallacious argument, organizing and delivering a speech that is appealing and inviting, these are cultivated in students beginning in the School of Grammar. The study of Latin and Greek provide a foundation for understanding the words and grammar of English and many other languages as well. In fact, most students find that their study of Latin and Greek sheds more light on their understanding of English than any of their English classes ever did. This is because these language, languages have a structure that teaches and reinforces grammar. We find Greek and Latin roots for nearly 90% of English words. It's no wonder students who study Greek and Latin consistently outperform their peers who only know modern languages in the grammar and language sections of the SAT and ACT. Some have objected to this course of study saying that it is not culturally diverse or that it is monolithic. And my response to this is first to point out that we should not seek diversity for the sake of diversity. What we want is to see diversity in the ideas that students encounter in the books, not just differences in the outward appearances of the book's authors. In In the place where it matters, the diversity of ideas, the old books that make up the great books do a magnificent job in accomplishing this. To read modern literature exclusively is, is to expose a child essentially to one point of view, the modern one. Authors from the same era who appear to be taking up opposing viewpoints all too often embrace the same set of assumptions. But in reading old books, we have the opportunity to expose students to vastly different societies and cultures, a completely different set of assumptions than the ones that we are swimming in. As C.S. Lewis has written, every age has its own outlook. It is especially good at seeing certain truths and especially liable to make certain mistakes. We all, therefore, need the old books that will correct the characteristic mistakes of our own period. And that means the old books. All contemporary writers share, to some extent, the contemporary outlook, even those like myself who seem most opposed to it. Nothing strikes me more when I read the controversies of the past ages than the fact that both sides were usually assuming, without question, a good deal which we should now absolutely deny. They thought that they were as completely opposed as two sides could be, but in fact, they were all the time secretly united, united with each other and against earlier and later ages by a great mass of common assumptions. He goes on to say, two heads are better than one, not because either is infallible, but because they are unlikely to go wrong in the same direction. To be sure, the books of the future would be just as good a corrective as the books of the past, but unfortunately, we cannot get at them. Thus, in order to form a critical perspective on the beliefs of our own time and our own culture, we must encounter an opposing perspective. We do not have access to the books written by a future. So we are forced by practical necessity to read books from the past to do this by reading the history and stories of ancient Egypt, Babylon, Greece, classical Rome, the Byzantine Middle Ages, Norse mythology, the Italian Renaissance, Elizabethan England, colonial America, and many other times and places. We are giving our students a a diverse education with significantly different points of view. When it comes to the concerns of racism and other forms of injustice today, our old books are are instrumental in cultivating a compassionate perspective that is essential to empathize with those who have experienced injustice. I believe that one of the most powerful things that books can do is to transport students to experience different worlds, to see the world from a different point of view. We use this power with the great books To show students systemic and social injustices. In eighth grade, our students read books like To Kill a Mockingbird and Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry. And in 11th grade, they read The Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass. Books like these give students the chance to imaginatively enter a world and experience the injustices of racism and slavery. Most students report reaching a new level of awareness of the horrors of slavery because of Douglass's book in particular. If you ask me, our old books are doing a fine job giving students diverse perspectives and opportunities to engage ethically with so- societal issues like racial injustice. Let's go ahead and talk about the means of educating. So the means of educating classically When we look at the way in which we carry this out, the means are so important. Uh, Dorothy Sayers, in that essay that I began with in The Lost Tools of Learning, she likens what we are doing in education to giving a musical education. That you don't simply, if you want to teach a child to play the piano, you don't simply teach them one song that they, by rote memory, learn which keys to play in the right order. You want to teach them how to read music and how to play. You want to teach them uh, how, how to play scales and keys so that they learn how to improvise and, and, and music theory in general. So what we want to do in education is provide use. we want to use the great books, the liberal arts, all the things that we are teaching our students really as just the raw materials by which we hone skills. We are honing those important skills of learning. Now, the way classical educators talk about this, a first pass is to say, let's take a look at what we call the trivium stages of learning. The trivium just refers to those first three liberal arts of the seven liberal arts. Those are grammar, logic, and rhetoric. And what we will say is that there is kind of a a grammar stage of learning, a logic stage of learning, and a rhetoric stage of learning. So at my school, the school of grammar is grades from pre-K to fifth grade. Our school of logic is sixth grade to eighth grade. And our school of rhetoric is ninth grade to 12th grade. And we have a different educational philosophy that really focuses on how we educate in those stages. So in a, if, you've, if, you know, if you recall what it was like having a young child in the grammar school, you know that young kids are like these sponges. They just love to soak up the information. So what do we do in the School of Grammar? We fill those sponges up. We have them uh, memorize all kinds of information. They learn timelines, chants, songs, dances, all kinds of things that allow them to lock in for the long term uh, facts, data, and information about all the different subjects. In this respect, you could kind of say there's a grammar, not just of language, but there's a grammar of science, a grammar of history, a grammar of math. And so uh, we have students memorizing uh, all kinds of facts and information about history or science or mathematics as well so that they have all this information in their minds. They may not know what to do with it yet, but it's there. So um, in in the grammar stage, there's lots of play. There's lots of games. Um, we, use, we work with that stage of life to lock in all that information. Um, when they go into the school of logic, we then focus on how to put all these things together, the reasoning, the logic behind it, the, the understanding. So they go from the grammar stage of memorizing that Abraham Lincoln was the 16th president of the United States to in the logic stage, putting things together about why the Civil War happened. Um, what were uh, the underlying causes and reasons that ultimately led to that? Why was Abraham Lincoln assassinated? They start to get more of the why, not just the what. Um, and we actually teach our first logic class in, a, in the School of Logic. Why? If you've met a, a, a middle schooler, you know they love to argue. So instead of saying, stop arguing, we're going to teach you how to argue correctly. And then we, we go into the School of Rhetoric. And in the school of rhetoric this is where rhetoric focuses on creativity performance exposition this is where students learn to to not just understand the material not just know the material but to synthesize it and to do something creative with it to develop a thesis an idea to conjure an argument and not just uh whatever they feel like but to do so on sound principles backed up with good knowledge and information And then it culminates what i have up here is a picture of uh one of one of our students that graduated uh evan babb this is him giving his senior thesis so all of our graduates and at most classical schools to graduate in your senior year you must write a speech that is a researched argument for an important cause and it you speak for about 15 minutes and uh, then you are ask questions and you have to defend it from the audience for about another 10 or 15 minutes Um, it is an impressive uh, demonstration and these students walk away from this education feeling empowered feeling like i have accomplished something they look back on this and see these as milestones of accomplishment Um, and really when you think about those goals that i started with virtue wisdom and eloquence where does that come from it comes from the process We love the curriculum and the content of the education, but it's really the process, this means that produces that. And so we try to create an educational environment that we would call one of healthy struggle, one where they are challenged. And so through that challenge and that healthy struggle, that's where virtue is born. That is where wisdom is learned. That is where eloquence comes comes into being. Um, so we want to 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 make this a healthy struggle for our students to elicit from them uh, these aspects of education, these aspects of character, these parts of themselves which are truly the ultimate goal. So with that, I think that that um, covers most of the bases. I could, I'm looking at my time and seeing that I'm about to go over. So I'm going to pause here and thank you for your time and... Um, I hope that this was the information y'all were looking for. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Headmasters Podcast. I appreciate you uh, making it all the way through the episode and finishing it out through the end. If you know of anyone that would benefit from hearing this, Please share this episode, tell your friends, uh, ask someone to listen. Um, We'd really appreciate that. Don't forget that we are wrapping up the uh, third nine weeks and report cards will go out after March 8th. We have our spring break from March 11th to 15th. Uh, Look for the Grand Tour posts and blog and pictures and all those things um, so you can see the amazing things our 11th graders are doing in uh, Greece and Italy. And then we start back to school on March 18th, and we will make our final push through the last nine weeks. Thank you for tuning in and for all of your support, and I look forward to uh, wrapping up this school year with you. Thank you.